Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to The Critic podcast. In 1950, over 20 million newspapers were bought every weekday in Britain, equivalent to one and a half newspapers for every household per day. By 2010, they were buying 10 million a day, or 0.4 newspapers per household. Now it's closer to 5 million, or 0.2. In this podcast, Professor Jeremy Black, author of The English Press, A History, talks to the critic's political editor and official historian of the Times newspaper, Graham Stewart, about what drove the growth of Britain's press, and whether it is destined to die or can better harness modern alternative media so that it can thrive in different forms. With collapsing advertising revenue, challenges from social media and millions of former or potential readers simply not in the habit of buying a daily newspaper these days, the British press continues to find itself in a challenging and and for the most part dispiriting predicament. But how did we get to here? And when was the heyday of the press in any case? Can it be brought back? To discuss these themes, Jeremy Black, let's begin at the beginning. Uh, when really was the beginning of the press in Britain? Um, during the reign of James I, in the early stages of the Thirty Years' War, so the Thirty Years' War begins in 1618, and news books are produced, which essentially are weeklies, are produced first in the United Provinces, Dutch Republic, um, in English, and then um, in London, And that, I would say, is when you're really talking about the beginning of the press. I mean, it takes quite a while. I mean, you've got to get into the 18th century before you have daily newspapers, Sunday newspapers, um, and a lot of what we associate with the press. But newspapers become more important in the 17th century as a way to have published information as opposed to private manuscript uh, newsletters, which were in effect subscription services. And what was the motivation? It, it, were these essentially court, court circulars, or were they vehicles for uh, for advertising? Oh, uh, there's no one purpose for newspapers. I mean, your term, the court circular, I suppose the closest is the Gazette, which in effect is a government newspaper. Um, giving the government point of view and produced under the auspices of the secretaries of state, who are the key uh, ministers in that respect. Uh, But um, once the news, uh, once the licensing act lapses, which is in 1695, and we end pre-publication censorship in Britain, then thereafter anybody can start a newspaper for any reason they want. Uh, I mean, obviously they have to, because the paper is taxed under stamp duty, they have to uh, buy stamped paper. Uh, So to that extent, uh, there is a um, a necessity to go through a kind of legal process, though of course some newspapers break the law and are unstamped. But the way in which different motivations play a role, sometimes politics, sometimes advertising, um, I would say in the 18th century, the crucial element, particularly in the provinces for the provincial press, um, is people who already are printers, jobbing printers in places like Bristol, Exeter, York, Nottingham, Chester, 
um, launch a newspaper as well. They've already got their printing press. Um, and test the market, see whether people are willing to purchase either by subscription or by purchasing it on the day, because provincial newspapers, with one exception uh, in the early 18th century, which is a bi-weekly, but provincial papers are weeklies, usually published on market day. Um, and that's very much testing the water, seeing what's going to happen. And it may well be, if we're looking to the future, that that's the sort of world we go back into, that in a sense, um, the technology of production cost is relatively low, um, particularly now if you're going to be just produced on the Internet. Uh, but the question is whether you're going to derive a revenue stream from advertising or from other ways of circulation, subscription or whatever, uh, donation, that is going to enable you to meet the costs. Well, before we come to that, I wonder if we can just put these um, 17th and early 18th century developments in Britain in a, in a wider context. A, the newspaper is essentially a European invention. There are certainly from the early 17th century German newspapers uh, and so on. Uh, to what extent was the British newspaper revolution of the 17th and early 18th century um, made possible by the, by the laws of England as distinct from the sort of forms of censorship or other ways of, of preventing the free expression of, uh, and exchange of ideas elsewhere in Europe? Well, the key, de the key development is the Glorious Revolution, 1688 to 89, and it's no accident that the, lapsing, the licensing act lapses after that in 1695. So in other words, prior to that, with pre-publication censorship, you'd had, as it were, uh, to have uh, approval of what you were going to publish. And uh, there'd been restrictions on um, people that were able to print newspapers. After the lapse, Licensing Act lapses, there are not those restrictions. And we move to the present situation, which is post-publication censorship. You can write at the present moment something that is true. But if somebody sues you for libel or if the courts decide that it breaches government regulations in terms of hate crimes, then the, you can actually be fined, etc., etc. But there's no pre-publication censorship at the moment. Now, if you're looking at 18th century Europe, the three main places which have a relatively free press are the British, the Dutch, and Hamburg. And it's no accident that in each of these cases there is the rule of law. In each of them, there's no accident that it's Protestant. Um, and in, ac in each of them, it's no accident that these are centres of entrepreneurial activity. Now, there are obviously newspapers in, you know, in, uh, produced in France, in Italy, in Spain, Germany, etc. To use modern terms, I mean, those, those states of Italy and Germany were, were varied in that period. But I think it's fair to say, if you've looked at any of them, you will know that they are um, much more under the power of government, um, and there is a much closer um, sort of attempt to police opinion. It doesn't mean that you can't sometimes have, often illegally so, um, newspapers or publications appear. So the Jansenists do this in France in the 1730s. Um, but there isn't the, um, the kind of freedom that you see in Britain. And, you know, there are good works on the continental press, people like Gilles Fayel on the, uh, on the French press, for example, 
And I think there is quite clearly a substantive difference. Now, as you know, we are now in a world at the moment in which everybody is very rude about British history and they, you know, they, they, you know, they're castigating the past. And you can obviously point to episodes in the 18th century in which there were rows between the legal authorities and the press. Um, and newspapers could get themselves into trouble. Uh, but I think, first of all, you've got to put that in the comparative context of the time. This was completely different to the position on the continent, or most of the continent. And secondly, you ought to also bear in mind that it is entirely possible that we will look back at what happened in Britain over the last 30 years and see episodes like the closing of the news of the world as a product of, as it were, public state uh, activity, the law courts, uh, as it were, uh, hitting newspapers over the head, uh, not too differently than there were sometimes attempts to do so in the 18th century. Mm. And if I pick up a, a, if I were to pick up a copy of, of an early 18th century newspaper, let, let's say that the Daily Current, which was the, the first daily, uh, which began in, in uh, 1702, well, I mean, how many pages, roughly, and, and what, what would the content be? Uh, actually, it's usually dated to 1701. The problem with the Daily Courant is we don't have the first edition, so um, first copy. So it's off, just as a matter of interest, because this will interest listeners. Um, for the 18th century, it appears to be the case that roughly half the copies of newspapers which we know should have survived aren't there. So it's often rather difficult to extrapolate when their first issue was, uh, because you would obviously go back from certain numbers. But we don't know, because there is evidence that people often produced, shall we say, an erroneous trail. But what would you get in a newspaper? Well, compared to a modern newspaper, virtually no illustrations. Most newspapers were uh, two, four, or eight pages. They were quite tightly printed by modern standards. Um, the articles were anonymous or pseudonymous, i.e. a friend of the nation or Agricola or Britannia might be writing an article. Um, there would be, shall we say, by modern standards, a slightly episodic process of organization. And often the advertisements would interest you enormously, generally for medical cures and for books. Those are the two things most commonly advertised. I mean, there was no point advertising, shall we say, bread. Everybody would know where you bought bread. Um, but so you're advertising often novelty, new things that come into that community. Um, uh, I mean, I've, re you know, I've written several books on newspaper history. Um, I actually find them very attractive to read. They're based on, in a sense, linen-based paper rather than the wood pulp of the 19th century. So they're physically um, quite robust, um, and you don't get the ink bleed or the see-through that can be a problem in uh, some 19th century works. Um, the major problem, if you look at them today, is you use the term handle. Well, the major problem is that most libraries won't let you handle them. They'll insist that you look at them in either digital or microfilm process. And that, for example, is the case with the British Library, which has one of the biggest collections. But there are still some libraries, particularly those of um, in some of the um, sort of um, 
county, provincial uh, newspapers um, where they haven't yet digitized and where you can look at originals. So uh, you can go into the um, Devon and Exeter Institute and actually handle newspapers going back to the 17 teens. And, you know, the, the, I, I personally find it much more attractive looking at a, an original than looking at a, a digitized version. And the, the way they were priced and, and the market they were aimed at, um, really for the, for the gentry class, uh, or was it a much broader readership, and um, were women catered for? Well, first of all, the price was often affected by taxation. So if you look at the um, the second Stamp Act, which is the 1725 Act, it imposed a halfpenny stamp on every half sheet of newspaper. And at that point, the price of most papers rose to tuppence. Um, now, um, would I say it was gentry only? No, I, I would say it isn't. Um, um, what I would say is that, first of all, we know that uh, people could, who could read newspapers didn't necessarily need to afford them. In other words, if you went into a coffee house, if you went into a barber surgeon's, if you went into an inn or a tavern, part of what you were paying for uh, was the ability to read the newspapers, which were generally left there, and people would read them and often discuss them or shout about them. And that's that's commented on by contemporaries, and it's commented on in prints as well. Um, then on top of that, you didn't, it didn't even need to be able to read. People would often read aloud newspapers as well in certain places. And on the streets... Uh, there would be people from whom you can rent a newspaper from, generally for a halfpenny. Um, so that's a completely different market to a gentleman sitting at leisure in his home. And then separate to that, there's the unstamped, uh, unlicensed press, which is being printed on paper that doesn't bear you know, you know, the stamp showing it's paid the Stamp Act, which is illegal, of course. Uh, but the newspapers of that type we know existed. Uh, there are far fewer of them surviving, um, so they tend to be underrepresented. And indeed, if I can take that a stage further, because this is a point I have made in lectures. I used to teach a course on newspaper history. One of the great problems at looking at the press in the past Past, and I fear it's exactly the same problem today, is that people tend to focus on what they think of or are told is the quality press, and usually it's political commentary, and tend not to look at more popular newspapers. So in the 18th century, unstamped newspapers would be an example. They tend not to look at the advertising component, and they tend not to look at the non-news component. And a key element of this uh, Graham, which is worth thinking about today, is you started off by bewailing the fate of the press. Well, yes, but also no. In terms of, um, for example, free sheets produced generally with advertising revenue in local communities, there are quite a lot of those now. Um, so it's partly a question of what you assume the press ought to be, as opposed to the idea that a regular regular item that appears um, is in it's in essence of interest, whatever form it takes. Yes, I mean a, a lot of new, local newspapers are, are, are struggling now. Of course, well, yeah, but I'm not talking necessarily about um, local newspapers, as in sell sale newspapers. 
I mean, you know, let me, t- let me give you an example. Uh, I live in Exeter. If you, look at the, if you look at the newspaper that probably circulates most in Exeter, it wouldn't be the Express and Echo anymore. You probably find um, it's Waitrose's newspaper. Or indeed the community news. You get the St. Leonard's community news, which is pushed free through all of the houses in the area of St. Leonard's. You get the same in Heavy Tree. And these are presumably, fi- I don't, haven't looked into the economics of them, but they're presumably financed by the advertisements so what we're talking about i'm not saying this is more or less desirable all i'm trying to talk about is the classic problem that you get with commentators academics or journalists which is they focus on what they're they're lazy they focus on the established criteria and they can't think outside the box So if you start to think about a Waitrose newspaper as a newspaper, you get a slightly different account of newspaper circulation in Exeter than if you're just looking at the Express and Echo. And would something like the the Waitrose newspaper, would that have had its 18th century equivalent of, of, let's say, a a local grocer or merchant um, basically producing either a free sheet or or a cheap uh, newspaper to to promote either his products or or those of his associates? Well, that's a very interesting question, because as I mentioned at the outset, a lot of the newspapers, particularly in the provinces, were founded by printers. What was the classic thing that they were advertising? What a surprise, books and other products sold by the printers. These newspapers were usually obtained either at market day when you would go into the printing office or they would be sold round a circulation area, and G.A. Cranfield's book, which came out many years ago, was good on this, and I've written a bit about, well, actually quite a lot about it myself. Um, and then what would happen in these areas is that you would get the agent who would bring it round, and what was he also selling? The other products of the printers, which would usually include not just books, but things like ink, um, shoelaces, all sorts of stuff, patent medicines, which were being advertised in the newspaper. So the economics of it was really quite interesting. But the problem is, and uh, you know, we're leaving aside completely as well, the, the extent to which London newspapers often uh, were very heavily accented on advertising as well. What the problem is that most people who have chosen to write on the press have focused on it politically, not economically. Mm. So, And the difficulty, therefore, is that that encourages them to look at certain types of newspapers, including, incidentally, some newspapers which were essentially essay sheets that didn't really take advertising. So, you know, let us give you a modern example. It is as if you were in a situation in which somebody today was to write about the press in 2020 and to write about an exemplary publication like the critic but forget to mention that there's something out there called the mirror or the sun or the star or what like or what keeping in mind though the 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 more seriously focused journalists by which i do mean the political journalists the news gatherers uh less so those who are kind of driving a more uh commercially minded uh, publication it, by the end of the 18th century. I mean, how were they getting their news? Journalists today, they've got uh, you know, they've got a huge resource of of, of press wires. Agents. Let me just pick you up though on one thing. It is harder to write for the Sun than it is for the Guardian. 
Well, I mean, that's partly because the, you know, you are restricting yourself to different words. Um, you're restricting yourself to a different syntax. Um, so we've got to move away from the idea that in some way the Guardian is a better paper than the Sun. I mean, each of them are completely prejudiced. One of them raids, uh, displays its prejudice more clearly than the other. So let's just put that aside. Going back to the late 18th century, um, on the whole, you've not got what we would call uh, newspaper correspondence. Most newspapers are operating on a sort of uh, cut-and-cover principle, to use phrase later used to describe the building of the London Underground, um, in the sense that they often take items from each other. They often take a lot of their foreign news comes out of the Dutch press. Remember, if your newspaper is coming out as a tri-weekly, which a lot of newspapers do, um, or indeed as a weekly, um, you've got time to take things from elsewhere even more so if you're a weekly in the provinces. Um, and often um, people will also sort of benefit from items sent in. So somebody you know, who might have a view on something would send something in, and if the newspaper printer is short of copy, he'll chuck it in. But on the whole, they're not short of copy because for tax reasons, um, when you're paying more tax as the newspaper rise, uh, increases in size, you're not actually in, under enormous pressure to increase the copy. And it's not really until the 1850s and 60s and the end of the so-called taxes on knowledge that newspapers start to have the potential to grow much more rapidly. And from the end of the 18th century, we've got newspapers like The Observer and The Times, and they are bringing in a, a, an impressive amount of foreign news, particularly European news initially. Uh, for other newspapers, though, provincial newspapers, are, are they covering foreign news at all, or are they very much focused on their locality? No, they very much cover foreign news, because if you live in a locality and the newspaper comes out once a week, you know what's happening. You don't need to read it in a newspaper. Um, no, they very much tell you about London news and foreign news. Uh, the foreign news often taken out of the London papers, though some newspapers, such as some of the Bristol newspapers, are very proud of saying they have their own independent sources of foreign news, by which they generally mean merchants' correspondents. And inter interestingly enough, you correctly cite the Times and the Observer. Uh, the Stamford Mercury, which is an older newspaper, um, uh, continuous newspaper, that goes back into the early 18th century. Um, but no, as far as news sources are concerned, uh, there is a degree of similarity but also of difference between the major newspapers um, in the uh, 1790s, and in part that's to do with politics, and in particular those who are more or less sympathetic to war with France um, and those who are more or less sympathetic to the government. Um, now, politics has always been a theme in the press, and indeed in the provincial press as well. In places that had more than one newspaper, places like uh, um, Norwich or Exeter, York, Bristol, um, there would generally be one newspaper that was pro-government and one newspaper that was critical of the government. Um, where newspapers, where there was only one newspaper, it gen generally was the case that the newspaper was less partisan, though not invariably the case. The end of the 19th century, we've got the, the, the Harmsworth brothers and uh, the, the Daily Mail, a whole new generation of newspapers. Uh, is this a transformative uh, event in the development of Fleet Street? 
I think you're right, Graham. I think it is a transformative event. Um, the um, circulation figures uh, rise dramatically. The amount of money invested in the press rises. The revenue rises. And the price of newspapers are cut. So in March 1914, um, you see Northcliffe even cutting the price of the Times, which uh, you know, um, which he's taken over, cuts it from threepence to a penny. Um, so yes, I think it's fair to say that um, that you know things are go- are changing very much in scale, and of course this is linked to Britain becoming a more urban society. It's linked to uh, the effect of mass. Uh, circulation, um, sorry, it's linked to the effect of mass education, which I think very much comes into effect, uh, ma- you know, mass circulation. And it's linked to what's called the new journalism. Um, so there's a style which I think is very much more sort of connects with the public. And, um, uh, you know, these, I think, are, are important changes in British public uh, culture. Um, and, and technology is really important. The Daily Mail is founded in 1896, and its first leader announce, announces, our type is set by machinery. We can produce 200,000 copies per hour, cut, folded, and if necessary, with the pages pasted together, etc., etc. So the production, things like um, linotype machines, you know, the... Uh, the typewriter, of course, which is in very important for the journalists. Um, the railway, including night trains to move newspapers around the country. These are all very dramatic and important changes. And I think you do get, um, you know, um, I mean, the mail itself, from what I remember, on its launch day, sold 397,000 copies. Now, and by 1901, so that's five years later, its circulation had passed a million. So we're talking about very significant uh, change in the press. Um, uh, and, you know, famously, um, the Marquis of Salisbury was disparaging, referred to it as uh, a newspaper run by office boys for office boys, a paper for those who could read but not think. Well, you know, I mean, I think that tells you more about Salisbury than it does about the uh, the public of the time. And then actually, if you read the press, one is struck by how they are introduced to to issues and you know it, it it's impressive and it's not just um the mail i mean the daily express which is launched in 1900 is very quickly selling over 400,000 copies and that again is a daily so we're talking about in aggregate terms over the week the month the year very significant numbers of newspapers being sold I'm very struck that the 20th century, in terms of circulation, was the the golden age of of newspapers, particularly Fleet Street newspapers. They faced the challenge of uh, the wireless radio as a source of of news and entertainment, a rival source, and then television uh, after the war, particularly from the 1960s and 70s as well. And yet sales hold up incredibly well. Um, How did newspapers at least for a long time, see off these challenges from alternative media? 
Well, I think they were helped by the fact that the BBC was not designed to be popular in sense. <laughs> I mean, in its own way, Lord Reith was a woke figure. Um, and if you wanted to read about uh, movie stars and, you know, exciting stories about crime, but also, you know, fairly dramatic and interesting um, reports about what was going on in the, in, in the world, uh, you would probably read a, a newspaper in the 20s and 30s. And the newspaper also, they you know they did all sorts of things in their circulation wars, giving things away, trying to keep the pricing competitive, um, and you you know you must remember at that stage the competition was essentially uh, with with radio. As once you move into television, I mean I would say it's not till you get to ITV that you actually get a television channel that really wants to be popular and and followed by the bulk of the population as opposed to telling them what to do. And so it's not surprising that uh, people are still very motivated by, by, uh, by newspapers. I mean, newspapers hit problems. There is obviously control over newsprint supplies during the war. I mean, rationing doesn't end until a long way into the uh, 1950s. But if you look at the Daily Express, the Daily Express's circulation in 1960 is, I think, about 4.4 and a third million, I think, and the Daily Mail about two million. You know, these are very significant, uh, um, you know, figures. And if you remember that Beatles song, Paperback Rider, Writer, the protagonist is working for the Daily Mail, and that's 1966. I mean, he wants to be a paperback writer, but the, the newspaper job is described, quote, as a steady job. Uh, now, in many senses, the newspapers were do, still doing very well. I mean, the Mirror, you know, irrespective of the challenge from the, the television, the Mirror's circulation in 1967 was 5,282,000, which was a world record. Um, and I think what really kills the press is not the, uh, the television, but like so much in Britain in the 1960s and 70s, the way in which uh, trade unions with their anarchic processes are, um, you know, their frequent strikes, the division of labor between competing unions, the complete failure of governments to stand up to trade unions. I mean, it wrecked much of British industry. And I think a lot of Fleet Street um, was, in, was with that. And, you know, you've got then Rupert Murdoch, who, you know, people are taught to jeer at, but in practical terms, he broke the restrictive practices of the print unions in 1986. And that was a very significant uh, change. Um, and, you know, the press uh, recovered a degree of energy um, uh, in the late 80s and 90s, um, both being seen as uh, having the opportunities of new production technology, new distribution technology, and of still of having political uh, significance. Uh, you don't have to believe the, the sun, which, you know, declared, proclaimed, quote, it's the sun what won it in 1992. But the fact of the matter was it was possible to believe that or to assert that. Um, 
And so I don't think one should take this view that, you know, the new technology of the television came along and made the press redundant. In fact, you could argue it the other way around. You could argue that given the state of the public subsidy to the BBC, the public, the, the BBC dramatically underperformed as far as having an impact on the public is concerned. Whereas newspapers like the Mirror or the Sun or the Express or the Mail actually, you know, without any state subsidy was still doing jolly well. So uh, when and why has it started to go wrong? Well, I think it has gone wrong, and you very kindly, I think, referred to my book on the English press, and I, you know, I did, I did di- discuss that. I mean, first of all, um, I think that there has been a shift, not towards television, but I think there has been a shift towards different forms of taking information um, in terms of the technology that is provided, social media technology and related technology over the last 15 years. I think that's been particularly hit hard at the advertising revenue. And I think, therefore, that newspapers have had to think very hard about how they're going to respond. Now, years ago, when I was writing an earlier book on the press, I remember I interviewed Andreas Whittam-Smith, And he said to me, this is soon after he'd launched The Independent, and I remember him saying to me that he saw the basic resource of the paper as being a group of journalists, and whichever medium they appeared in, whether, and he mentioned three, I mean, he mentioned hard copy news, he mentioned radio, and he mentioned computers, whichever medium they appeared in was less important than the skill. And if if you were to look at newspapers as that, rather than as a physical product, you could actually say that the newspaper world is very dynamic at the moment. It's just very different to what we're conventionally used to thinking about it. Or you could say, as I've said, that there is still, despite everybody talking about the obsolescence of hard copy, just as, as you probably know, um, uh, Kindle use of Kindle is diminishing and the use of, uh, of hard copy books is remaining steady, um, you could actually say that the use of hard copy news remains, but it's just people aren't willing to pay for it, which, rep- which therefore takes you in a very different direction about funding. And of course, this isn't a uniquely British pro- problem or issue. I mean, Warren Buffett has famously, who is, you know, is invested in newspapers, has famously said that he only thinks a small number of American newspapers will uh, survive. Um, I mean, I think one of the problems in Britain, which really does hit it hard, is something that I, as I said, I've already mentioned, that you are subsidizing one form of of news production, um, the uh, you know the, the the BBC, as opposed to other forms, and obviously if you have that, um, you know you've got a you've got a real problem. And so, what can newspapers do to uh, to fight back? Should they essentially give up on the on the hard copy version and focus their resources on online behind a subscription? Uh, paywall, or can they think inventively as their as their forefathers did? Well, I think um, first of all, I think that there is nothing inherently wrong about them test going back to testing the market. In other words, you know, moving between different out. Uh, out out forms, if you like, depending upon which are going to be profitable. And um, I don't think one should necessarily say that just because um, 
you know, something is on, let us say, uh, well, we're talking on a podcast. Something that is on a podcast is necessarily less good than something that appears in a regular fashion. In fact, if we specifically, since I think this is a critic channel, let's be clear about this. The critic comes out once a month. That limits the flexibility of its hard copy. You can run out a podcast, presumably on a daily basis if you wanted to, which therefore means that you could refer much more rapidly to the news if you choose to take that format. So therefore, it wouldn't necessarily be the end of the world if one format prevails and another one doesn't. Um, I mean, obviously, for people of my generation who like hard copy, it is a matter of regret when you see hard copy going. But that's not the same thing as seeing it as the end of civilization. The key thing, and this is something in which I think the critic does, uh, does co uh, contribute greatly, what is important about the news is the ability to offer in a democracy more than a monoculture, more than simply a uniform opinion. And where I think there is a strong need, a very strong need, for an across the political, um, you know, battlefield, uh, you know, wherever, whatever you want to call it, um, is for difference of opinion to be offered. And what I think is regrettable is not so much the loss of individual titles, though that I think is unfortunate. It is when you see a closing in of the mind. Now, I think that that is most at the case at risk at the moment due to, um, you know, the um, I think it's most at risk due to the wokishness which we are faced with. But I do think it is something we need to be aware of. And that's why I would like to see a strong press continuing whatever format it is in. Well, on that rallying cry, Jeremy Black, we must leave it there. Thank you as ever for your insights. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.com. Co.uk.